James chapter 1 verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's the most glorious statement about the character of God, one of the f- most profound things written about him in the scripture. God is incapable of temptation, and he tempts no one. And we're going to look at that subject this morning. And so I've called this message Resisting Temptation. I have three points which I hope to do in about half an hour. And so pray, full of faith, that I'll do it, all right? But um, it's interesting to me, as I was also just thinking about Father's Day, when Jesus taught us to pray, he, he taught that amazing prayer to all believers, and he said, Our Father in heaven. Starts with that little phrase, Our Father in heaven. And continues and says a whole lot of things. And one of the things he says when he's praying, teaching us to pray, he says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's the theme that I want to just look at this morning out of James chapter 1. And I uh, want to welcome you if you're visiting this morning. This has been a series that we've been doing for the last couple of months. So just to briefly recap from last week, I'd like to just kind of try and link the two things together. And the main thing that we've been speaking about over the last couple of months is uh, in the study of James, is how to endure trials with dignity, how to dignify trials, um, and how to respond in a spirit-led way in our lives that counts trials joy. And that's what James is trying to encourage us into. And I said last week that if we do that, one of the promises to us is that we receive the crown of life. And we looked at that last week, what that means. And um, that's a present reality for us now. It's not just something that we receive one day in heaven. We receive the fullness of that one day in heaven. But right now we can enjoy the crown of life as we endure trials with dignity, as we respond with with grace in in our lives. God is pleased with that. And he blesses us in an amazing way. And we feel the smile of God upon us tangibly. And that's what James is talking about when he talks about the crown of life. And I used the image of the gold medal and said, actually, we're going for gold. And that's what God wants us to do. We're going for gold. And so if you missed it last week, please get online and listen. And I want to encourage you to do, to do that and re-listen to the messages and let God do something deep in us as a church. So I want to look at the subject now that James introduces this morning of temptation. And the main difference between trials and temptation is a very simple thing. Trials come from the outside. Temptations come from the inside. And that's the, we can do nothing about trials. Remember, peripeto, we fall into trials. We can do nothing about them. But trials come from the inside. Uh, temptation comes from the inside. And trials don't necessarily involve sin and uh, Remember, I quoted Job, if you want to read Job 1.16, just to, uh, for biblical reference to that. Trials don't necessarily involve the fact that we sin, that's why we're going through a hard time. But temptation can lead to sin. And we're going to look at that this morning. We, can, we can't, you know, can't avoid trials, God in His sovereignty allows trials in our lives, but we can reduce temptation in our lives. We can do something about temptation. We can't resist trials, but we can resist temptation. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. And the subject of the the title of this talk is Resisting Temptation. So, what is temptation? I'd like to try and attempt to define it in a little couple of minutes. Well, temptation is a subtle mixture in our lives, isn't it? It's a subtle mixture of suggestion, just a little idea, just a little thought, coupled with desire. And the additional pressure that comes upon your life 
as a result of that desire. So initially, there's a little suggestion. It's put to you. It's an idea. And some suggestions are not temptations at all. Uh, but when suggestion and desire come together, that's powerful deliverer of temptation in our lives, isn't it? And uh, if there's no desire, actually there's no temptation. And that's the problem, is that our desires get out of control. Our desires get out of control. And we can desire many things. We can desire glory. We can desire greater self-esteem, security, possessions, independence rather than submission in terms of the church and teamwork, working as team. No, we want to be independent. We want to do everything ourselves. We don't need other people. This desire that can lead to sexual impurity. All of these are desires that get out of control. And that's when temptation becomes a problem. Temptation is not necessarily sin. And I was fascinated just looking at a couple of things out of Romans. Because a weak conscience, uh, a weak conscience, I want to say, can lead to fear. And that's not necessarily sin, but it's a weak conscience that leads to fear. For for example, if you read in in uh, the Roman church, in Romans chapter 14, verse 2, some people thought they had to be vegetarians. That's a weak conscience. All right? And it says, uh, Romans 14, 2 says, One person believes he, might meet, he can eat anything. Another, the weak person, person eats only vegetables. That's what it says. And so there was this debate in the early Roman church. Can we eat meat? Should we be eating meat? Shouldn't we just be vegetarians? And Paul writes to the church and he says, You can eat anything you want. And if your conscience is weak, eat vegetables. That's fine. Let every man be convinced of this for himself. That's what he basically says. Or others wanted to keep the Jewish holy days. And so it's fascinating to me because we still have these things in the church today. Christians who feel like they somehow have to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and all that kind of stuff. And they get all distracted. No, we are free in Christ. You don't have to do anything. There are no holy days. And uh, why do I say that? Well, Paul says it in Romans 14 verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day better as another, while another esteems all days alike. All days are equal. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Set people free. If Sunday, the Sabbath day is a special day to you, that's cool with me. If you're a person that says every day is God's and I worship Him every day of my life and I want to honor Him every day of my life, that's cool with me. Just you be fully convinced in your own mind of what God has spoken to you. This is the grace of God. We keep each other free. <laughs> All right? Yes? Amen. You should be saying amen. It's good news. The Corinthian church. What about the Corinthian church? Well, they were afraid to eat meat bought at a butcher shop, basically, because they weren't, con- they weren't sure of how it was killed. And so um, what does Paul say in the, to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 10.25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. He sets them free. Why? Because they're coming out of Jewish legalism. He said, it doesn't matter. Don't worry if it's offered up to idols, whatever. You are free in Christ. It's got no power over you. This is the gospel. Amen. And some had even said, don't get married. So uh, Paul writes to, in 1 Timothy, 3, 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, and he speaks of those who forbid, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. And then he says this amazing thing. For everything created by God is good. Yep. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. He sets them all free. So what I'm trying to say to you is that something about consciences 
have to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We have to have our minds renewed. And that's what Paul is continuing to try to do with the churches. To say, I want to renew your mind. Help you to see what Jesus has done on the cross. Help to set you free in the grace of God. That you can live free. Not under rules and regulations anymore. But in the grace of God. And the highest, highest thing you aim at is the law of love. And you, you aim at that and you'll fulfill everything else accidentally. That's what he says. And so I want to encourage you this morning. As we look at temptation, and I hope it sets you free. All right? That's my object this morning, is to try and set you free. And I think James is anticipating a question that we might ask in the little statement that he makes about temptation. Because I think James is trying to drive at this point. He's saying, if God in his sovereignty permits us to go through trials, then is he doing the same thing with temptation? That's the question I think James is trying to ask. Does, in other words, does God allow, does God lead us into temptation? Does God, is God, is God someone who tempts us? Just as God allows trials because he's sovereign. And James makes a radical statement right at the beginning and emphatically states that he says, no man is tempted by God. No man is tempted by God. And we like to kind of sometimes think that God is leading us into temptation. We can sometimes stumble upon a situation. Something can seem to happen accidentally. There's a whole lot of circumstances that kind of uh, come together and suddenly we're confronted with this situation and we can think God has led us there to tempt us. And James makes it quite clear that God cannot tempt. And he states it strongly. He says, let no man, no one. And the first point I want to make to you this morning is that there are no exceptions. There are none. No exceptions. We, would, we might all like to be the exception. We might think we are the exception. We might want to be the first in the head of the queue to be the exception. <laughs> but James says, there is no exception. No one is tempted by God. No man. No one, no one is tempted by God. You see, the thing is, with desire that gets out of control, is our desire pushes us in the wrong direction. And then we face temptation. And it might be a desire for glory. It might be a desire to be superior over other people. It might be a desire to be admired. Uh, it could be a covetousness desire. I want to have what other people have. Uh, I want a bigger house. There's covetousness. Uh, there can be jealousy, because you're jealous of someone is is uh, your desire is to be better looking than you are. And so you're jealous of other people that are better looking than you. Uh, you might have a desire to punish someone because they've done you wrong. That desire, when it gets out of control, is very negative. There can be a desire to do things without God. There can be a desire to do things without His church. I want to say one of the things that's really, really disturbed me is a rampant individualism in the church that I've seen all over the place. Guys just saying, we don't need church, we don't need leaders, we'll just go off and do our own thing. It's not God's way. It never has been. Just to do things independently. God is always like saying to Jesus, I love you, but I don't love your bride. I don't love your wife. It's like saying to a man, I, love, I like you, but I want nothing to do with your wife. That's what it is. It's illogical. It's immaturity. And we need to help each other into maturity. There can be a desire to be self-sufficient, self self-centered. And the problem is, 
that as we allow these desires to begin to take and pull at our heart, we, we face severe temptation. And there are no exceptions. None. And I want to rejoice with you in the fact that there are no exceptions, because if there were, was even one exception to that, you and I would be faced with a dilemma. We would be questioning our salvation for the rest of our lives, because it would always be, perhaps I am the exception. You hear what I'm saying? There are no exceptions. All have sinned and fall far short of the glory of God. Yeah? And the grace of God is available to all who will be here, believe. There are no exceptions with God. It's a beautiful thing. So, James starts by saying, makes it very clear, none of us can say we are tempted by God. And that's a favorite trick of the devil. You see, the devil is always trying to twist what God is saying. And from the beginning of time, the devil twisted the word of God. In the Garden of Eden, God gives clear instructions. And he says, guys, I want you to enjoy this. Adam and Eve. I want you to enjoy everything in this amazing garden, but there's just one instruction I want to give you. See that tree over there? It's called the tree of life, the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of that tree. Have anything else you want. All right? And we know the story well. The devil slides along and he says to Eve, says, surely you will not die. In other words, Eve, you are the exception. It doesn't apply to you. That's what the devil is trying to plant in a mind. It doesn't apply to you. I read a little quote this week from Terry Virgo. He says this, Judgment was the first doctrine to be challenged in the garden, and it still is today. Did God really say, Surely this doesn't apply to you. It applies to everybody else, but it doesn't apply to you. You're the exception. <laughs> and that's what the devil does. Doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception. I'm a special case. You know, it applies to every other Christian. Doesn't apply to me. I'm special. And the devil is hell bent. He's got all his energy focused on this thing of trying to convince us that we are the exception. And so the temptations we face are not really real. You know, this temptation I face, it's just it's just because of my personality. It's just the way I am. It's just it's one of the weaknesses. So every time we kind of like faced with something that is a real temptation, we excuse it. And we say, might say, even say things like this, well, you know, it's, uh, God understands. You know, if I was to say this to someone else, they wouldn't understand, but you know, God, He understands me. He's my, he's my Father in heaven. He's my uh, Heavenly Father. He's always, his face is always turned in love to me. He understands this weakness of mine, and uh, like God just winks at it. He says, no, it's not a problem. You're the exception. You know, I think the devil even points towards the sovereignty of God in order to distract us. And because we know that God holds all things in, in his hands, and we know that God allows things, the devil points us to that and says, you know, actually, this is really God's problem, God's fault. He, he's kind of, he's made this happen. He's, 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 he's put you in this place. And the, the devil is devious. That's why he's called the devil. So I want to say to you, under this first point of us not ever being tempted by God, the devil rarely will even use theology to try and get you to give in to temptation. And so I want to encourage you this morning, don't underestimate the devil. Okay? I'm not saying we should give him any more uh, time or focus. I'm just saying don't underestimate the devil. Because the, the Bible describes him quite clearly. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the, the truth of the gospel, the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God. 
So he has given some power in this world. Yeah? Ephesians 2.2 says, He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in all sons of disobedience. So the devil does have some subtle power in a real way to make some things happen in the world. He's not sovereign like God is, but he does have some power to orchestrate some things. So you might think God had made a situation happen, but actually the devil is also at work to make some things happen in your life, to distract you, to get you out of the will of God for your life. And so why does James major on the fact that we need wisdom from heaven? Because he's saying, you need wisdom from heaven to outwit the schemes of the devil. I'm sure you've heard this said before that the two most powerful beings on the, in, the, in the universe are trying to kill you. <laughs> God who wants you to die so Christ can live in you. And the devil wants you to die so that you're dead. And I believe one of the subtle things that the devil wants to do is to us to believe that events and certain things that happen are calculated and, and, and uh, put, uh, orchestrated in a way to say that God is the one who's tempting us. And then to convince us that actually in the temptation we are the exception. And that everything else applies to one else but not to us. That we are a special case. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the devil doesn't have to work very hard at that because we all think that we are exceptional. <laughs> we, are, we all like to excuse and say, it doesn't apply to me. Okay. Point 1B in this thing of thinking God tempts us is this, that we are all tempted to blame God his fault. What do I mean by that? Well, James actually makes a very strong point that every one of us, when we are being tempted, tries to blame God because he uses an, a Greek word which makes it quite obvious. And again, apologies for my Greek pronunciation to all the Greeks in the house. But it's periazomenos, periazomenos, which means it's a present par passive participle. So that means we could translate that verse in this way, when being tempted, no man should say. When being tempted. In other words, in the moment. So guys and girls, when you are in the middle of the temptation, when your head is fuzzy, when your heart is beating, and when that moment, guys, at the small wee hours of the morning, when you're alone and you're surfing channels and you know I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be surfing channels, because I know I'm going to hit something just now and I'm going to watch something I shouldn't be watching. In that moment, when your finger is on the button, at that moment, know that God is not tempting you. It's your own evil desire. And we all have weaknesses, don't we? Uh, what's a weakness for me might not be a weakness for you. What might stimulate me might not stimulate you. But... When the right circumstances, the right conditions come together, the right person, the right insecurity, and there's an obvious suggestion that is made, there's this internal combustion that happens, and that is called temptation. A fire begins to erupt in our hearts. And if any Christian in that position, all they need to do is to give in to this false thought that God is the one who's tempting them. 
and then they give in and feel good about it. See, that's what, that's what Eve did. She was convinced. She convinced herself that she was in the will of God. Why do I say that? Because if you read on, she just, the, the Bible talks about the fruit and says uh, she saw the fruits w- would make her wise and it was pleasant and nice to look at, pleasant to the eyes. So she convinced herself that she was actually, it was okay. It was somehow in God's will that she, 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 she should eat this fruit. And that's the devil task for all of us in all of our lives, is to convince you that the temptation you're facing is from God, and he appeals to that false thought in you. And I want to suggest to you, my friends, all we, we have to resist with all of our hearts, those thoughts. Resist it with all of your heart. So how does this apply to our lives? Well, we have some practical day-to-day things. First of all, temptation to be bitter. We've all faced that sometimes in our lives, haven't we? Sometime in your life. Someone has mistreated you. Someone has misunderstood you. You feel hurt. You feel abused. Perhaps perhaps right now you've experienced a a tragedy in your life. You've lost a loved one. There's an untimely accident. There's some kind of sickness that's come upon a member of your family. It seems so unfair. It seems so unreal. It's like God, and you're crying out saying, God, why did this happen to me? Why did you let this happen to me? And those things might all be real and they all might be true. And the circumstances in your life might be the trial. They might be a trial for you. And we looked at that and how we endured trials with dignity. The temptation is to get bitter and to blame others and to blame God. To say, God, it's your fault. And we've got to fight that with all that we have. Every molecule of our bodies passionately saying, I will not get bitter. By the power of God, I will not get bitter. By the life of Christ, Christ in me, the hope of glory, the power of the Spirit in me, I will not get bitter. I refuse. What about temptation to steal? All of us have had that temptation. You might feel no one's going to miss a couple of pens at work. That's small things. Who's going to notice? Never be missed. See, that's how our minds work. We kind of excuse it, and then it starts in a little way, doesn't it? What about temptation not to give, not to be generous to others? You know, it's, for me, it's an amazing thing. I've not yet met anyone who feels led to tithe or to be generous, including me. It's, it's not a thing that comes naturally to anyone. It's, and yet, when, like Abraham, when we give, we experience great joy. <laughs> And all of us, as I was preparing this, I thought of some of the excuses I've made in terms of a lack of generosity in my own life. Uh, God, you know I've got these bills. God, you know how much my mortgage is, you know my rent. You know there's inflation that's running at 4% and the cuts. And how are we going to cope as a family? And uh, surely, God, you can use someone else to help support the work of your kingdom, not me. Just for this, this time, it's just too little coming in. Can't balance the books. And I was interested in what um, George said about praying for yourself. Because, you know, sometimes, our, uh, I was talking with, uh, with uh, Corbis this week, sometimes our, our faith and our expectation for God is so self-centered and so small, isn't it? So we'll say things like this, God, please bless me. And basically what we're saying is, God, please bless me so that I have enough, me and my little family, that we have enough, just so that we can survive. Please, I'm, I can trust you. My faith exists for that kind of blessing in my life. Absolutely. 
just as long as we're okay. And then there's another level. And the next level is so that I can have a pension one day, so I can pay off my house. So we've got faith. Oh, God, please bless me so I can have a little bit of security. And then the third level is so I can accumulate more things. I've got faith for that, God, that you would bless me, that I can have a bigger house and perhaps a nicer car and maybe one day a nice little boat in the Mediterranean. I've got faith for that, that you'd bless me in that way. And yet it's so self-centered. Very few have faith for the blessings of God so that they genuinely can become a blessing to the kingdom. (laughs) What we were talking, one of the questions was asked was this. If God gave you a million pounds by this time next year, genuinely, have you thought about how you'd use it? What would you do with it? It is a profound question. Because we all dream about that, don't we? Oh, my financial need is just going to be over. So I want to ask you a question, and I've asked myself these questions this week, so it's not pointing a finger at anyone. If you got a million pounds by this time next year, what, you would, what would you invest it in? Preserving yourself and your family, ensuring that? Ensuring your own personal future, security? Would you buy a whole lot of stuff? Would you even consider investing in the kingdom? So I've got another question. I think perhaps God does want to release money to his church. I genuinely believe he does, even in the midst of this thing that we have right now. But maybe... He wants to release money to men and women that he knows he can trust. Maybe. They're not just going to spend it on themselves, not going to just self-preservation, but who genuinely in their hearts have a vision for the greatness of his kingdom. One of the other things we were talking about is that there a, was a survey done, and I found this fascinating, in The Economist's. And they interviewed a whole bunch of millionaires and some billionaires, right? These are guys with big bucks. 75% of those men who had more than you and I will ever have in our lives probably put together, 75% of them still said that they did not feel financially secure. (laughs) There's a security that comes that you can only find in God. No amount of money is going to ever give that to you. And I want to just say to you, every time, you know, in the history of this church, whenever we've, we've had people to come in to minister, I always ask a couple of guys, say, well, what, how should we bless them? What, 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 what should we give? And I have a little philosophy that the, the, everyone gives a different figure, and the lowest figure is always from the devil. <laughs> I'm making a joke. It was supposed to be funny, but it obviously wasn't. The lowest figure is always from the devil. Because why? There's a generosity that we need to start living in. And I love the thing of praying for others. Well, if we can't be generous to others, we always expect one God's generosity to us. But we can't be generous to others. We've got to live in it. There's something wrong, isn't there? 
What about sexual temptation? Well, I want to say sex is the most wonderful <laughs> and natural, natural appetite in the world, inside of marriage. It is. It's a physical need. And uh, what does God say in Genesis 2.18? It says, it's not good for man to live alone. Well, if you ever wanted an excuse, to, there's one right there for you. Not good for man to live alone. Good excuse to begin from. And I want to just say, we live in a, in a nation, we live in a culture that is sexually promiscuous. Never has sex outside of marriage been so available and so easily uh, entered into without anyone in the culture even batting an eyelid. What makes it such a temptation for everyone, even Christians, is the convenient nature of it. I've been in the church now 18 years, leading the church. I don't know how many times I've heard this said to me, and I don't accuse anyone, this phrase. We're just living together to save rent. I've heard that once. If I heard that once, I've heard it a million times. We're just living together because we want to save money. Hey, but I want to say if that's you, and I don't know if anyone is living with someone right now, so I genuinely don't know that. Don't let the devil fool you. He's got a plan to destroy your life. That's one way you're going to destroy your life straight up. Okay? Just pay the price or get married. Yes? Get married. Uh, one of the scriptures I quoted when I was uh, engaged, I was only engaged for a short time, less than six months. Why? Because Paul writes and says, it's better for a man to marry than to burn. If you know you are burning, just get on with it and get married. Come on now. Sex is a good thing. Celebrate that. Fantastic that we are dedicating five babies. It means there's some good, positive sexual activity in the church. That's a good thing. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, can we just take James seriously? Can we just allow the Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts that we narrow down what we know are our weaknesses? That we narrow it down. I think James, I've said right from the beginning, the, the, the book of James is a call in God for us to live higher by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what James is calling us into, encouraging us into. We can learn not to murmur. We can learn not to complain. We can learn not to be bitter. We can learn all of these things by the power of the Spirit. We can live sexually pure lives. Temptation doesn't have to be an issue. Generosity can become the most natural thing in our lives by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit. We can, we can overcome sexual lust. Why? Is it by trying really hard? No, this is the mystery. This is the profound mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You hear what I'm saying? Christ in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you. And because the Spirit resides in you, He empowers you, and it's not you that's trying, it's His life in you that is generating energy. I've yet to meet a person that has really understood the gospel. You know, some people have a problem when I preach once saved, once saved, always saved. I want to just say this gently to you. I've never met a person who has understood that 
and who's been transformed by the power of the gospel, who is not has a, who does not have a deep desire in them to be more holy, more generous, more passionate for Jesus, more sold out for Him. When people really get the gospel, that is the automatic thing that happens in their lives. They don't want to go out and sin anymore when they've understood the gospel. That's the mystery. Mystery. <laughs> because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you with me? I'm trying to encourage you. And so I want to just say to you that one of the things we, we absolutely must come to the point of is doing away with the suggestion that God actually winks at sin, you know? God, hey, you know, like the Monty Python sketch? You like pictures? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more. Just a little, uh, you like pictures, you know? I, 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 I. That God somehow winks at sin and just excuses it. Or, or who was it on the X Factor? Rihanna. Was it Rihanna? Dancing in a way that really did make it the X Factor. Like, okay, well, we're just like cool with that. It's like, oh, that's just people. Ex- Come on, guys. You can choose to change the channel. Live by the power of the Spirit in the moment. Say, I won't give in to that. Change the channel. Get your kids to change the channel. They shouldn't be watching that. I'm not trying to legislate your morality. I'm trying to say, surely, if we are being transformed by the power of the Spirit, we live differently. Okay, and I've already gone on for far too long. I said half an hour and I've made one point. I do want to say this. I need to say this. God cannot be tempted by evil. It is impossible for God to be tempted by evil. And that's why the statement that we read this morning is one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Scripture, that God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. What that means, if we just think about it a little, is that God is incapable of being tested and tempted by evil. He has no experience of evil. He's incapable of being tried by evil because He doesn't respond to it in any way. Okay? So that's why God does not tempt you because He knows nothing of sin and He cannot tempt you into sin because He doesn't know what it is. He is pure in every way. I want to suggest to you this morning that we can tempt each other into evil because we know how to appeal to the base lusts in everybody's heart. How do I, why do I say that? Well, He has a couple of little things. You know it's so easy to make someone else jealous? Just tell them about the amazing holiday that you've been on. Just tell them how much you've just had an increase when you know that they are struggling financially. Just boast about the increase that you got at work. The great holiday. Just Twitter about, or Facebook, all the famous people you've just met. I'm fascinated how Facebook seems to be a way that people do that. Just drop names all the time. What does that do? It, it generates, it feels people, get, they'll get jealous. And you're pushing the button. You can make someone else angry by just putting your finger on the pride in their life or their insecurity. You want to see anger pop? Just do that in your marriage. Where you know your partner's insecure in the area and you just kind of needle it in and boom, it explodes. We can try and win people over by flattery, saying the right thing to get something out of them. 
These are all base lusts. These are not good things. And we can learn to live differently by the power of the Spirit. See, the beautiful thing about God is that He's absolutely pure. He's beyond being temptation. I, lo- I love what John 1, 5 says. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. In Him. There's not one micromolecule. If God was full of molecules, you know how small a molecule is. Not even one part, nothing of that is darkness. Not one part of anything. There's no darkness in Him at all. God, you can't entice God into doing something that's contrary to His will by flattering Him. You can't name drop with God. God, you want to know who I met? You can't bluff Him in any way. You can't provoke Him in any way. So, uh, my last point is this. Our response to this temptation is to resist, to resist, to resist, to resist. God ends trials perfectly in His time. And remember we said when God ends a trial and we've endured it with grace and with dignity, it becomes beautiful. All things become beautiful in His time. Well, temptation can last, the length of temptation in your life can be up to you. It can be. So resist it. So guys, don't watch TV late at night. Don't surf channels late at night. Get yourself out of temptation's way. If a beautiful woman walks in and makes a suggestion at work, you be like David and you run out of the room. Sorry, I mean Joseph. You run out of the room. Don't kind of stay there and linger and think, oh, this is rather nice. Come on now. Flee! Run for your life! (laughs) That's true. Ah, you know, I just want to go back to that example in in the garden. You know, God said to Adam, what's this thing you've done? He responds in a classic male way. Classic, since the beginning of time, men have been making excuses. What does he say? Eve made me do it. Not my fault. Classic male response, isn't it? And what, what is James saying? James is kind of saying the same thing. God comes to us and says, what is this thing you are doing? And we say, it was the devil. Say, oh no, God, it was you. <laughs> We're trying to make excuses all the time. And James is saying that we're all drawn away by the lust that we have in us. And there's a great opportunity for us as Christians to grow in grace. The grace of God, robust grace of God that says, I will say no to that thing in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And for us to establish a godly pattern, godly habits, we need the grace of God. We need... We need um, the Spirit of God working, transforming us from the inside out. And so, again, just linking back into some of the testimony this morning, much of our service in church can be motivated by carnal ambition. Much of our prayer can be selfish. And when you think about just praying for yourself, just following on from what George said, remember this, that God is not motivated by anything that is evil. He's not motivated by selfishness. He's not, he can only be motivated by what is purely and truly good. That's what motivates God. You can't twist God's arm. All right? <laughs> so, why, why do I say that? Well, thankfully, John 3.17 says, God said of His Son, This is my beloved Son who I am, in whom I am well pleased. The Father from heaven said that of His Son. And that's why we confidently, we boldly come to God, our Father in heaven, not in our strength, 
but in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of the blood of the cross, in the finished work of grace on the cross, because that's what God responds to. Perfect good. Isn't that lovely? Takes all the striving out of your life. You just come to Jesus. Thank you. That's the power of the cross. And somehow there's this mystery where God is pleased where we resist temptation. He is pleased when we are joyful under trials. He is pleased. There's a mystery. I don't understand it all. But he loves and he blesses our obedience and he he pours out his blessing on our lives. And so, just as I said, patience has a perfect work. I want to say to you that temptation also has a perfect work for your life. God's perfect work of patience in your life is so that you would be perfect in every way, complete and lacking nothing. Temptation's perfect work in your life is that you will give in and you will die. Perfect work. Why did I say that? Last little scripture, and this is the last scripture. If you go to James 1.14, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. There's this terrible progression that if it remains unchecked in our lives, five despicable things happen. Temptation, conception, sin, the growth of sin, and lastly, death. So we've had a look at what temptation is. Let no man say he's tempted by God. We looked extensively at what that means this morning. Conception. When desire is conceived. An amazing image of birth. Conception. Egg and a sperm. When desire is conceived. That's the phrase that um, he uses. So what is that? That's the giving in. It's the yielding to. It's, the, it's when you welcome the suggestion, when you dwell on it, when you play with the idea. And once you do that, it's somehow it, gets a grip, it gets a grip on you. And your mind plays havoc, you start to behave foolishly, there's a blindness that comes upon you, there's a passion that comes upon you that's unchecked, and even at this point, you're still not sinning, but it's very hard to get out of it from there. You've dwelt on it, you've thought about it, it's conceived, it's bringing death in you already. And then sin. After desire is conceived, it gives birth. The image is, again, the thing of conception, birth, the baby is born. And it's really talking about that famous passage in Romans, which I, I, I love. It says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And the things I do want to do, I don't. And it's kind of that amazing passage, Romans 7. And this wrestle all the time. And, and then Paul says, and who will, who will rescue, me from, rescue me from this body of death? Uh, thanks be to Christ. So, this giving birth... It's what happens in the imagination. You've given freedom to that thought in your mind, and now it's got a grip on you because you've given it that freedom. And then it says, after that, it grows. And when sin is fully grown, that's when it's become a habit, when you do it repeatedly, when it's powerful, it's, more, it's becoming more commonplace in your life. And if there's no repentance, if there's no acknowledgement of transformation that is needed, it becomes a bondage. And then you are trapped and you cannot get out. And that's what Romans 6.16 says. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one with whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Romans, Paul makes it plain. And then the final stage is spiritual death. Spiritual death, insensitivity to God. It's godless living. It's like you live your life without him, separated from him. 
And what begins in this life continues on to, to eternity. And so what is separated now, unless something happens, it's separated in eternity. And it ruins our lives, it destroys us, and we die. Spiritually dead. Patience has a perfect work for you. The Holy Spirit has a perfect work for you. The devil, sin, temptation has a perfect work for you. The one comes by the power of the Spirit, that he brings life to you. The other is resisted by the power of the Spirit, that the same Spirit that works in you, that raised Jesus from the dead, works in you, bringing life to your mortal body. So, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the good news. Because the good news is Jesus has come. The grace of God has come. We are once those who were dead on our life and we are transformed forever. And what has been made right in this life continues on into eternity because the power of the blood of Jesus, this is the gospel, the good news of grace in our lives. Amen.